you're into film history, you've probably heard names like Edward Maybridge, Edwin S. Porter, Thomas Edison, Alice Guy Blanchet, and the Lumiere brothers. They're the early pioneers of cinema. But before any of them even shot a frame of film, there was a man who not only created a film camera, but shot and projected at least three films. His short epics were called The Roundhouse Garden Scene, Traffic Crossing the Leeds Bridge, and Man with an Accordion. Each of these films were three seconds long or shorter, yet they were the first films in history. Today I have the story of Louis Le Prince, his invention and his mysterious disappearance. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkies? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas Multipass. You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. Now, class, last month we discussed the man who first demonstrated how a series of photographs, shown one after another, could give the illusion of motion. Today we look at the man who is credited with the first known motion picture, and also his mysterious disappearance. His name was Louis Amy Augustin Le Prince. At the time of his vanishing, many people were working on the idea of pictures in motion. Because of this, there were many suspects and theories in the unsolved case. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Louis Le Prince was a French inventor who was tall and distinguished looking. He had lamb chopped sideburns that connected to his carefully trimmed mustache. For those who knew him, he was an artist and a perfectionist. He was born on the 28th of August, 1941 in Metz, France. His father was a major in the French army. He was fortunate that his father's friend was the artist, photography pioneer, and inventor, Louis Daguerre. Daguerre gave Louis photography lessons. As a young man, he studied painting in Paris and also studied chemistry at Leipzig University. He found work as a photographer and painter who specialized in oil paintings and pastel portraits. He also excelled in the painting and firing of art pottery. In 1866, Le Prince was working in Leeds, England, for a friend from college named John Whitney. He met and fell in love with John's sister Elizabeth, known as Lizzie, who was also a talented artist. The two were married. And from the letters that survived between the two, it appears the couple had an extremely loving relationship all through their days together. In 1870, during the Franco-Prussian War, he went through the Siege of Paris as an officer of volunteers. The following year, after the war, the couple opened their own school of applied art, the Leeds Technical School of Art. It was there he became an expert in tinting of photographic images and fixing color images to metal and pottery. At one point, the couple were commissioned for portraits of Queen Victoria and the long-serving Prime Minister William Gladstone. It was around this time that Edward Maybridge, as we discussed last month, was hired to prove that all four feet of a horse came off the ground at the same time while running. The man who hired him was the former governor of California, Leland Stanford. This was accomplished by setting up a series of cameras in a row that would take an image of the animal as it passed by. 
Later, he discovered that if he flipped through the photographs one after another, it would give the illusion that the horse was running. Again, for more information, check out last month's podcast. When Maybridge's photographs were published, Le Prince became fascinated and began to get the idea of producing a series of photographs like Maybridge, but from a single camera rather than a series of cameras. Basically, what he had in mind was what we call now a movie camera. But before he could get started, for his employer, the Whitney Partners, the LaPrince family moved to the United States to investigate something called the Lincrusta Walton Process. I have no idea what that is, but when he got to New York, he found that the patent rights had already been sold to an American company. But the LaPrince family decided to stay in the U.S. He became the manager for a small group of French artists who were producing large panoramas, usually of famous battles. They were exhibited in New York City, Washington, D.C., and Chicago. While doing this, he was also working on experiments with moving photographs. At the time, his wife was teaching art at the Institute for the Deaf in Washington Heights, New York. And LaPrince became friendly with the principal, Isaac Lewis Peet. Pete allowed him to use the tools and facility of the Institute's well-equipped workshop. Joseph Bank, the mechanic, assisted LaPrince in his early attempts to make a motion picture machine. One of the major obstacles to overcome was the media to capture the series of images, as film was not yet available. So what LaPrince and his team did was invent a camera that had 16 lenses. Each lens shot a separate image onto photographic paper. It was a wooden box with four rows of four lenses and a hand crank on the right side. When the crank was turned, one by one, each lens would take a picture, one at a time, resulting in 16 frames. Of course, there were some drawbacks to this. First, each of the 16 lenses shot at a slightly different angle, making the final motion jumpy and hard to watch. In addition, since it was on paper, the paper would often rip as it went through the projector. For Le Prince, the perfectionist, this would not do. He had to come up with something better. But by now, Le Prince must have had enough with the USA, or maybe the family just missed home. So in 1887, they traveled back across the pond to live in England. By 1888, he finally had a single-lens camera. Well, when I say single lens, it actually had two lenses, but one was for the viewfinder and one was for taking pictures. The device used a roll of Eastman paper film that ran through the contraption, much like film runs through a modern camera. There was a lever on the right side that allowed the camera person to adjust the focus, and of course, a crank to allow the camera to work. A shutter was developed from metal parts that were cast at Le Prince's father-in-law's firm, Whitney Partners of Leeds. A local joiner named Frederick Mason built the wooden cabinet. Tony Booth, assistant curator at the National Media Museum in Bedford, where Le Prince's historical camera and footage are kept, said of the camera, if you look at the mechanism that the camera is using, it's very similar to the mechanism to all the subsequent moving image cameras that came after that. It's a single roll of film moving from one spool to another through a shutter and taking sequential images, which then were designed to be projected to reproduce that movement. 
In October of 1888, LaPrince shot his first motion picture, or at least the first we know of. It's called The Round Hay Garden Scene. According to LaPrince's son, Adolph, the film was made at the home of Joseph and Sarah Whitney in Round Hay, Leeds, England, on October 14, 1888. It features Eldolph LaPrince, Sarah Whitney, Joseph Whitney, and Annie Hartley in the garden walking around. Since the film is only 20 frames and lasts less than 3 seconds, there's no plot or story, but still it's the oldest surviving film in existence, as noted by Guinness World Book of Records. This work survives today only because in the 1930s, the National Science Museum in London photographed each frame, or at least 20 frames, from the original negatives. The originals are now lost to time. Are the 20 frames we have the complete film? Or were there originally more? We'll never know. As for the frame rate, Eldolph LaPrince, Lewis's son, later said that they were shot at 12 frames per second, but modern analysis seems to indicate that they were shot at 7 frames per second. Now, an interesting fact on how the dating of this film was confirmed. Sarah Whitney, the wife of Joseph Whitney, died days after the film was shot. And since we know the date of her death, and she's in the film, the date cannot be disputed. It's the first known film by Le Prince. And like I said, he might have created others before, but if he did, they no longer exist. But the fact is, Le Prince made his film years before anyone else, including Thomas Edison. His next film, made shortly after, was taken from a window at the southeast corner of Leeds Bridge, looking down at the street below. It's known as Traffic Crossing Leeds Bridge. Again, it's under three seconds, but it captures the real motion of horse-drawn wagons and people making their way down the street. Today, the building in which the film was taken has a plaque which reads... Louis Aimé Augustus Le Prince came to Leeds in 1866, where he experimented in cinematography. In 1888, he patented a one-lens camera with which he filmed Leeds Bridge from this British Waterways building. These were probably the first successful motion pictures. There's a third film called Man with an Accordion, which is just a man, his son Adolf, playing an accordion in front of the stairs leading up to a building. All that survives from that one is just a few frames. All three of these films are available all over the internet, so I encourage you to check them out. The Prince's name should be up there with the pioneers of films, people like Edward Maybridge, Edwin S. Porter, Thomas Edison, Alice Guy Blachet, D.W. Griffith, and the Lumiere brothers. But he's rarely mentioned. Why? Because Le Prince needed to do one more thing, and that was to have a public screening of his films. A screening would have had his name go down in history, but it never happened. He disappeared before it could happen. And to this day, his disappearance is a mystery. Le Prince planned a trip, first to the UK to patent his new one-lens camera, and then on to the US to promote it. After spending a little time with his family and friends at his home, on September 13, 1880, he took a train trip to Dizon, France. It just so happened that his mother died, and Louis was due a large inheritance, so he was stopping by to see his brother. 
And then on the 16th, after seeing his brother, he boarded a train to Paris on the Dijon Paris Express. He was to meet some friends and pick up his equipment, catch a ship in Liverpool, and sail to America. He never showed up in Paris. A search of the train found no trace of the prince or his luggage, and no one aboard the train remembered seeing a six-foot-four man with lamb chop sideburns. In fact, some say the only one who saw him board the train in Dijon was his brother. The French police, Scotland Yard, and the family undertook exhaustive searches, but to this day, whatever happened to Louis Le Prince and his luggage has never been solved although there have been many theories to what happened to Le Prince. The first was suicide. It was rumored that his obsession to create a movie camera caused him to go into great debt. Le Prince's brother's grandson told historian George Pontier that Le Prince wanted to commit suicide because he was on the verge of bankruptcy. The theory goes that George hadn't worked a real job for about three years and found that the money from his inheritance wasn't going to be immediately available. He was also a perfectionist who was unhappy with the way his projector worked, so Le Prince figured a way to make sure his body and belongings would never be found. However, Pontier noted that Le Prince's business was profitable and that he was proud of his invention and thus had no reason to commit suicide. His great-great-granddaughter, Lori Schneider, said, Louis was very excited about showing his new invention off at the Jamel Mansion in New York. This is supported by his letters to Lizzie in our family archives. He was also promised his share of a sizable inheritance by Albert, his purpose for going to Dijon. He was also a devoted family man. Suicide? Not likely. Personally, I can't believe that Le Prince didn't know just how profitable his invention would be. And in later years, Le Prince's papers turned up that showed he had plans for a theater and many ideas for future films. So I don't think suicide was the real reason. There are a couple of murder suspects. One such suspect was Thomas Elva Edison the great inventor known as the Wizard of Menlo Park. Now, the thing about Edison was, he wasn't the kindly man played by Spencer Tracy in that movie. Thomas Edison was a ruthless businessman who would stop at nothing to get his name on a patent. Profit was the name of the game. But would he go so far as murder? The theory goes that he ordered the assassination to prevent Le Prince from filing his patent because Edison was working on his own film system. This is what both Le Prince's wife Lizzie and their son Adolf thought to be the case until their dying days. Now, to add more to the mystery, when Adolf was 19, he was found dead in the woods, shot while duck hunting. Could Edison's men have been sent to stop Adolf from investigating? Well, the fact is, no real evidence has ever been found to show Edison had anything to do with the prince's disappearance. But you never know. There was also the idea of fratricide, that his brother Albert murdered Lewis. This theory goes that Lewis was owed a thousand pounds from Albert from his mother's death. Somehow the two began arguing over the money and, in a moment of anger, Albert killed Lewis. 
Remember, the only one who saw Le Prince get on the train was his brother. Pretty convenient. And, according to police, no one on the train remembers seeing a large man with lamb chop sideburns. And none of his possessions were found on the train either. Hmm, maybe they were never on the train in the first place? But when you think about it, how many people do you notice on a train? When I used to take a train every day, I was usually reading, not paying attention to other passengers. His great-great-granddaughter, Lori Schneider, disputed all of these theories. She said, I simply cannot believe the man who loved his family as much as he did, as evidenced by his letters, would either commit suicide or disappear on his own. The idea that his brother murdered him is ludicrous. He came from a very close, loving family, as evidenced from Lizzie's memoirs. Edison, although he was certainly ruthless, probably had better things to do than order a hit on a competitor. She also points out that Albert was a very successful architect in his own right in Dijon and didn't need the money, and that she has a letter from Lizzie that points out that it just wasn't Albert, but the whole family who went to see him off at the train station. Lori has her own theory about her great-great-grandfather. She says, My personal theory is pretty mundane. Since Louis took a later train, the Wilsons, who were there to meet him in Paris, went ahead and left for England when Louis didn't disembark when they expected him to. According to Lizzie's memoirs, the train Louis took would have arrived at Paris at about 2300. Being so late, he probably hailed a hansom cab to take him to his workshop. I think the driver, taking advantage of the hour and the darkness, took him to a remote location near the Seine, hit him over the head, and threw him into the Seine. There were two articles from this time that suggested that thieves were targeting lone travelers and Le Prince was in the wrong place at the wrong time. In 2003, a photograph of a drowning victim from 1890 resembling Le Prince was discovered in the Paris police archives. No other information is available about this man, so no one will ever know if it was him. But if so, it supports Laurie's theory. Lizzie Le Prince spent the following decades in America trying to prove Lewis's claim to be the inventor of cinema. She seemed to have never gotten over her husband's disappearance. And that was even compounded when Adolf was found dead. She died on November 4, 1925, in Tennessee. Nancy Fry and her husband Gordon were longtime contributors to my show, Coffee with Jeff. They helped out. They provided me information. They filled in when I couldn't do a show. Nancy provided many voices for Coffee with Jeff. And uh, and now, hopefully, she's going to become a regular contributor to Celluloid Days. So, take it away, Nancy. Hey, everybody. Nancy Fry here. Some of you have heard me and my husband, Gordon, on past episodes of Jeff's preceding podcast, Coffee with Jeff. Firstly, I want to congratulate Jeff on the launch of his new show. The inaugural episode did not disappoint. How cool is it to start with Edward Muybridge, one of the trailblazers of cinema and the creator of the historic galloping horse zoetrope footage? 
As a former horse owner, I can imagine some of what he went through to get those images. Moybridge, I mean, not Jeff. Considering most horses would literally balk at running through a series of trip lines. Episode 2, talking about the third man, was a revelation for me. The iconic theme, the music to that film, was very popular in the mid-20th century, and it's been an earworm for me since my childhood. I just thought it was some kind of typical easy-listening tune from the 60s. Nope, mystery solved. Thanks, Jeff. In episode three, we got a deep dive into Australian new wave cinema with 20th Century Oz. I'm going to have to hunt that one down because it kind of intrigued me, even with the depressing ending. Spoilers! A young Bruce Spence? Count me in. Movie buffs will remember Bruce Spence as the gyrocopter pilot in Mad Max, a road warrior, and Lord of the Rings movie fans will remember him years later as the Mouth of Sauron in Return of the King. That guy's a legend in character actor circles. For episode four, Jeff gets into one of my favorite guilty pleasures, Mystery Science Theater 3000. Now, I'm not sure what I have to feel guilty about, though. MST has been a solid part of pop culture for several decades now. I'm kind of feeling old saying that. Anyway, I regret nothing. If I had been quicker off the mark, I would have submitted a clip for this episode, The Crawling Eye, talking about Forrest Tucker and other leading man types who later became comic types. John Banner, Sergeant Schultz on Hogan's Heroes, and Leslie Nielsen pop immediately to mind. If you want to see Nielsen as a hunky lead, just watch the classic sci-fi film This Island Earth. Yeah, he wasn't always a goofy comedy guy. This week we get a look at Louis Le Prince, or Le Prince, my French is not so great. Anyway, another technological and artistic pioneer who blazed the way for moving pictures... The fact that I wasn't familiar with him came as no surprise as I looked into his life and work and found that he was yet another victim of the evil mastermind, Thomas Edison. Yeah, I have opinions about Edison. I don't think it's hyperbole to say that the more you look into Edison's life, the more you find that he wasn't so much a kindly inventor as a greedy, micromanaging, backstabbing megalomaniac. Don't believe me? Just ask Nikola Tesla. Edison had a whole factory of scientists and engineers working for him at his Menlo Park facility, and he took sole credit for everything they did. When Tesla, who worked for Edison in the beginning, suggested that AC electricity might be the way to go, especially since Edison's DC wasn't scalable, Edison shot him down. When Tesla left to work on his own project with some backing from Westinghouse, Edison went out of his way to slander and sabotage him, seeing AC as a threat to his own work. There was no collaborating with Edison. He seemed to see tech development as a zero-sum game with no room for different tech with different applications, and he wanted control of all of it. Just Google Shady Side of Edison or something like that for links to a long list of articles on the subject. If you're feeling whimsical, there's even a Tesla versus Edison music video on the Epic Rap Battles of History YouTube channel. Anyway, anybody who knows me at all will tell you I'm kind of a movie nerd, so I'm really excited about this podcast. When I heard Jeff encouraging people to send in comments and suggestions and welcome audio submissions, he got my attention. He may regret this down the road because I can run my mouth about movie stuff all day. 
Anyway, here's to many more episodes of Cinematic Wonder. Thank you for the kind words, Nancy, and I'm glad to see we uh, both think about the same when it comes to Thomas Edison. Though now you have me thinking that I mispronounced Le Prince every time I use the name, but uh, I don't speak French, so... I'll be looking forward to hear what you have to say when it comes to Tremors, but more next month when we talk about Tom and Sedison. I'm really curious to hear your thoughts. Thanks again. Well, I hope you enjoyed my little history lesson. There's a lot more to the story, including a fight for a patent by his family after he was gone. If I understand it correctly, they couldn't patent it in his name unless they could prove he was dead, and since there was no body, they would have to wait seven years. It's a whole thing. If interested, hey, why not read some more? Our next film history lesson will be on March 4th when I investigate Thomas Edison. I'll try to figure out just what in the world of motion pictures did he really invent. I hope you will join me then. Now, from last week's show, when we talked about the Trollenberg Terror, or the Crawling Eye, Russell sent me some feedback. He said, Some background for you. As you mentioned, Crawling Eye was based on a TV serial called the Trollenberg Terror and retitled for the U.S. market. This was not an uncommon practice at the time. Hammer Productions specialized in doing movie adaptions of popular radio and TV serials because they knew there was already an audience and that the stories would work. That had a particular success with the Quartermass Experiment, which they retitled the Quartermass Experiment. See, they took the E off Experiment, so it would begin with a big X. Anyway, back to Russell. Which they retitled the Quartermass Experiment to capitalize on the new X rating, which was for horror in those days, not sex, and cast Brian Donlevy in the lead role for the U.S. market, and then adapted the sequel, Quartermass 2. They actually wanted to do their own original Quartermass, but writer Nigel Neal said no. So they did a very similar one called X the Unknown. Other companies copied the idea, so Tempian Films adapted the ITV serial. You thought the German science character was more like something you'd find in a comedy, and he actually did a similar character in some Avengers episodes, a comic character with a sinister underside. Les Bowie, who did The Crawling Eye, was considered the grandfather of British special effects, being a mentor to people like Derek Mennings, Brian Johnson, and many others, and was part of the Oscar-winning FX team for the 79 Superman. He was not fond of the Trollenberg Terror, though. His idea for showing the mountain mist from which the monster descended was to successfully retouch the matte painting of the mountains, but instead they told him to stick some cotton wool to it and keep moving it down. My own feeling with the FX and costumes is that sometimes they don't work and look campy or goofy, but it's better than trying to do the Star Wars option of a rubber nose and ears every time. Yeah, and I agree with you, Russell. I know I make fun of those special effects, but I also understand and appreciate the effort. Thanks for the message, Russell. Next week, the second Friday of the month, I will talk about one of my favorite films. I will look at the 1990 cinematic masterpiece Tremors, starring Kevin Bacon, Fred Ward, Finn Carter, Michael Gross, and Reba McIntyre. Perfection. A scorched outpost in the middle of nowhere. You know how close I am to leaving this place right now? How close? Maybe that's why Val and Earl... Oh, yeah, yeah. 
decided to leave town. Edgar Deans. They just picked the wrong day to do it. That's how they get you. They're under the ground. Now, it's up to Val and Earl to save the world. That's one big mother. Who died and made you Einstein? And they know just what to do. Flip for it. Damn. Kevin Bacon. Fred Ward. Tremors. Do you have a thought on Tremors? Send me an email or voice recording at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com. Coffee with Jeff is all one word. So I'm always looking for film suggestions. If you've got a suggestion, you can send it to me at my email address. I also have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page, a Coffee with Jeff Twitter page, and even a Coffee with Jeff website. If you could leave me a review at wherever you download this episode, I would really appreciate it. Those really help the podcast, and I'd be forever grateful. Hey, take care. I'll be back next Friday with Tremors. So long. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas Multipass. You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time.